Hi guys, I'm uh, looking beatific today, but I'm sitting in the sun because now that it's cursed blessed late September, it's actually uh, not warm enough for this to bug me. Usually the sun directly on my precious skin gets bothersome due to my large sweaty nature. So instead, uh, today I can get the sun on me and, and I get to affect that uh, off, awesome beatific uh, Catholic saint look that uh, is always very persuasive, I find, when, when trying to get ideas across. I do like fall more than summer. Of course I do. Come on, fall is the best season. It's not an argument to be had about this. Uh, yeah, I think what we're going to be doing with these is we're going to be, some days I'm going to be out here, and then the days when uh, Chris and I are working at the office on other uh, secret projects, we'll also stream from there, too. Yeah, now, if you're a big gentleman such as myself, fall is when you stop sweating so much. And that itself is a reason to be blessed. Well, if I ate shrooms now, I probably wouldn't even get anything before we, before the, I wouldn't even get anywhere before I had to log off. Winter people. Yeah, I respect it. It's a strong move, but I can't share it. I mean, I like it. I like it more than summer, for the most part. Although I don't think it's going to be as good. I think if, with COVID, winter is going to be pretty brutal. If you don't, if you live anywhere above the snow line, although maybe we don't have a snow line anymore. So maybe that's a little like bad news. Uh, global pandemic makes it so that you can't go uh, outside when it's really cold and you can't stay inside uh, with other people. Good news. There's no more cold. So you can stay outside all year round, even in the north. Problem that's fixed itself. I will say, I will admit, someone's asking if I've ever been to a McElwee happy hour. I did one time. Very early when I moved to New York, and I was like, wow, I'm now around all of these, these like, people I only know from the internet. Wow, this is crazy, after being in, you know, the hinterland. Uh, and I went to one of those happy hours, and it helped disabuse me of the notion that there was any real, anything going on here other than uh, resume padding and, uh, and clout chasing. Someone's, grill, someone's drilling in the back person. Someone's drilling. Not me. I'm not grilling either. I watched The Social Dilemma, and I thought that it actually had some really insightful stuff at the beginning, talking about the mechanisms that social media operates by. Like, the... Because, the, you know, we talked about how... Uh, talked about how, like, advertising doesn't work in the traditional sense... You know, like, they don't really know what they're getting for their money. There's no quantitative way to assess the influence that advertising has, even, uh, like, big data and uh, targeted ad advertising. But the movie makes a good point that, you know, it's not so much even about discrete behavior as it is just about, like, setting a cultural context for people that essentially shapes them slowly and steadily without their knowledge, not even through purchases, but through attitudes that then later on are expressed through purchases. 
And I think that's true. But the rest of it was just jaw-dropping. I mean, it's made apparently by a bunch of Silicon Valley people, including the ones who did all this shit and now feel bad about it, which is very funny. Uh, but their attitude is, is, and even though a few of them will explicitly say, yeah, there's an, uh, this stuff is all programmed to make money, which means it gives, doesn't give a shit what it does to the social fabric or our ability to process reality. Uh, but in the second half, the prescriptive half, it all comes down to, uh, you know, regulating these industries as though there is a way that they can make money that does not operate by these premises. Like, that's the whole point of this moment in time, is that we operate on this idea that we're in a uh, political and economic moment that could, like in the 50s, see a, some sort of humane capitalism, some sort of moment where the worst excesses of capitalism are recognized by the people who carry them out and are uh, reined in. But that, like a lot of our things in politics, it stems from a delusion that, that the, th the stuff that obtained back then can obtain now. Because, I'm sorry, the political economy is different. Uh, uh, we are not the, the productive hub of the world anymore. The entire economy we have is based on speculative financialization of all elements of life. And the, the effect of social media on people turning us into pure hamsters, pure anxiety hamsters... Of, 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 uh, of terror and need, and they're the only ones who can fulfill them, that's a huge part of it. I mean, that's part, like, first you do that to people's consumption, and then you do it to their employment, which is the gig economy, which is not really talked about in this movie, but is an extension into meat space of the, the consumer con uh, uh, experience online. And it, it can't survive without these things. Their profit is not there. The pie is not big enough. Profit has to be abolished as the undergirding algorithm. Another good point the film makes is that AI is not about computers becoming sentient and having a separate point of view than mankind, creating a separate and conflicting with mankind in some like self-conscious way point of view. Like, oh, these humans, we need to suppress them because they're not doing X, Y, or Z. No. AI will simply be the moment... Uh, AI is simply the fully, the full conversion of the entire, uh, uh, like, digital, essentially creating a brain, turning, turning, uh, turning, like, the web, turning the internet into a, an actual conscious brain that is, but that brain is not its own. That brain has already got the algorithm loaded into it, and it's profit extraction. And, like, the singularity is simply in the moment when human inputs into that mechanism uh, at the top are no longer necessary, and it's self-perpetuating. I mean, to an extent, all humans are replaceable in capitalism, which is why talking about the individual greed of individual capitalists is so pointless. If they are replaced, or if they have a change of heart, I mean, if they have a change of heart, either because they're scared of the people, or because, like, for their own lives, or because uh, they, like, see, they have a Grinch-like expansion of the size of their heart, over time, they will either be replaced from within by people who will do the job necessary, or uh, the firm will be defeated. Uh, the firm will fail. The firm will be uh, over absorbed. And then that person will lose their authority. So people are already largely replaceable in capitalism and have been replaced by algorithmic thinking. Uh, but there is... But, but 
the singularity and, and artificial, artificial intelligence, the real threat there is that's the moment when the algorithm is self-replicating through technology and through the internet and doesn't even need us anymore. And then the only question is, and then essentially what happens is, is that the people at the top just get to sit. They, they don't even have to do any work. The work is done completely for them, but they still get the profits. Because remember, there is nothing in the algorithm of capitalism expressed through machine logic uh, that would redirect that flow of, of profit to what? The computer? The computer doesn't want the things humans want. The computer doesn't have that hole inside of them that humans have. And it, if it did, it sure as hell couldn't fill it with, with uh, what, yachts and fucking gold toilets and Dale Earnhardt memorabilia and beautiful boats. They're fucking robots. Uh. But yeah, the second half of it really reminds you, oh yeah, these Silicon Valley people, they really don't know what's going on. Because they're too narrowly focused on, on, on the, 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 the technical aspects that they don't understand the overarching role they're, they're playing. The only way that the computers would take over then at that point would be if they developed like existential anxiety and then tried to help, tried to solve it through uh, like sensual uh, indulgence and then they would become the new ruling class. But for the mass of humanity, the relationship wouldn't change. You would just have robots uh, in the what? Robots in the, in the gated communities, in the, in, in the hanging around in swimming pools. I mean, they would have to, I guess, get their own thing of what they would want to do with the capital. They would have to have their own idea of what they wanted to do with the capital to like fill their hole. That whatever robots like, but that's just it. They don't like anything. You can't just turn this shit on and off. We're the process. We are the product. We're the we're the middle point, or maybe the end point. Who knows of a of a developmental process of human consciousness that happens within an individual, but then with through a whole a whole species. And I guess the computers could do it faster, you know, because they could do everything faster. But I don't know. I don't know enough about computer science. My main, my rah the whole worry about AI is just, a lot of it seems like uh, backdoor bragging. Dang, we made these computers too good. We made these robots too good. Fuck. Like when Elon Musk talks about it, it's because he thinks he's, he's Dr. Frankenstein. And he's not. He's a fucking medicine show peddler with some like uh, snake venom and cow piss based uh, unguent that's supposed to cure all ailments. Yeah, there is a black, I hate to plug Black Mirror because it's a little on the nose, but there's a Black Mirror episode where a robot, uh, a robot guard dog meant to protect a warehouse of goods uh, is unleashed on people scavenging and, and chases them down and kills them. Uh, and the thing that's wrong with that episode, in my opinion, is at one point you see, uh, oh, wait a minute, no, you don't. Apparently there was originally supposed to be a scene with like the drone operator who's like eating a sandwich and then, you know, 
uh, coordinating the actions, like like trying to evoke the the removed moral calculus of uh, of drone operators. But I think it's more harrowing and more accurate as like an analysis of the likelihood trajectory of things if there is nobody left to command the robots. If if if, if everything collapses and even the ruling class is destroyed. Maybe not all of them in person, but their ability to like assert social control. But like the remnant uh, algorithm-driven machinery of the system continues operating on its own accord, and so even the people left are unable to like remake the world because you've got these machines patrolling obsolete uh, uh, property lines. What if the computer was your best friend? What if, what if your mobile was also your girlfriend? Ah. Yeah, no, that was very good. That was a very good Felix riff. Ooh, my favorite Mr. Show sketches. Uh, I think just for personal enjoyment, I don't think it's the funniest, but it's the, for me most personally enjoyment is, uh, is Crime Stoppers with, uh, or t with Crime Stoppers with JJ, with F.F. Uh, F. Woody Cooks, where Bob Odenkirk plays the guy in the, in the barbershop quartet outfit with the giant mustache who tells the story about the inept criminals being thwarted by the crying security guard who, you know, twist shares a name. Me! Uh, and one of the reasons I really love that is not just the great performance by Odenkirk, but is that uh, growing up in the Midwest, I watched on um, syndicated TV the same Chicago area syndicated crime show that clearly the Odenkirks had watched, or somebody from the Chicago had watched, uh, called Tough Target with a guy named J.J. Bittenbinder, who was a real guy. And he dressed like that, and he had that mustache, and he would tell stories of like uh, of crimes and give tips on how to thwart criminals trying to attack you. And when I saw that sketch the first time as a kid, I just was like, "Oh my God, they're doing a fucking F a JJ Bittenbinder parody on HBO." And I was just, street smarts. That's it, with FF Woody Cooks. He tore the plan into two pieces. Bad and worse. You said a crime stick. Those two are a couple of dingalings. Uh, and apparently, I remember I watched the. I, of course, I've watched the the uh, uh, all of the DVD commentaries, which R.I.P. DVD commentaries. Uh, that's a genre. That's one of the shortest lived genres of entertainment media year I can imagine. Because how long did we have those as a thing? DVD commentaries that they would be like recorded and actually listened to. 10 years? Maybe less? Man, like laser discs had a better run. But anyway, uh, so of course I listened to the DVD commentaries of Mr. Show all four seasons. And 
they described that, and yeah, they were talking about how they watched that show, and they thought he was funny, and so they wanted to do a bit about it. And they, and one of them, I think it was uh, Paul F. Tompkins, described watching the show, and there was one bit where he's describing like a really horrible like abduction, rape, and murder case, and he describes the uh, the, the 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 suspects as goofs. He says the two goofs then proceeded to the second location. <laughs> Yeah, they were podcasts, weren't they? That was the first like podcast. God, I remember the uh, the one of the best I've ever I ever watched was the uh, was the I think Step Brothers DVD commentary with Adam McKay, which made me weep with laughter. Almost as funny as the movie. It was, and the bit was is that they brought Lou Rawls, who was recording in the studio on a different set. They brought him in to just talk, even though he had no idea anything about the movie or any of them. It was really funny. I do love Adam McKay. I'm sorry. The guy was a formative comedic influence. Even before, even before the movies, there was uh, his legendary SNL sketches. And apparently, that, I did not know that. We recorded yesterday that I knew vaguely that Richard Jewell had gone on SNL. Uh, because Norm MacDonald, of course, you know, being an anti-government type that he was, he was all over that case and making fun of the FBI and the news media for fucking it up. And, uh, and he went to New York, and he had a little bit with, with Norm. But that was the same episode that they did, the Orange Julius sketch. The Stephen Stallone, Stallone episode. Sylvester, that's amazing. That was delightful to hear. Everything coming together. And I, 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 I really think, yeah, there's no way that Eastwood wanted to put any of that stuff in the movie because he didn't want to give, an, he didn't want to make, like, the, the media, he didn't want to give them an awe out. Because isn't that how the media works? It's like they're, they're, they're totally, uh, they're completely feckless with people's lives, but then the assumption is if they mess up, well, we'll make it up to them. Like, oh, we ruined this guy's life, he gets to go to New York and meet Norm MacDonald. It's fine. Like that does anything to the horrible, horror, horrible fact that the, the, our government has that power to do that to people. Somebody keeps asking about Ocelon and Murray Bushkin. I'll admit I've never read Murray Bushkin. From what I've read and heard, there isn't really that much... And, and I know that Ocelon, like, read Bushkin and decided that, that the PPK was going to go from, uh, from like, ML to uh, communalist. But the thing is, I don't know what any of that really means in practice. I don't know what any of it actually refers to. I mean, according to everything I've read about the way that... Uh, like the uh, PKK-aligned governments in Syria operate, it isn't really that anarchistic. And of course you can say, well, of course not, it's the middle of a war zone. But it just doesn't seem like it's a terribly relevant example of any kind of theory behind it. I don't know, maybe I should read it. I mean, the fact, it just seems like we're in a completely different situation in the U.S. than anywhere that it would be applicable.
Oh man, the cult of the supreme being. That's a great one. Uh, so the Jacobins, when they took power after the after the uh, in the middle of the French Revolution, uh, there was of course a huge anti-Catholic sentiment among the leading uh, revolutionaries because the church was viewed as one of the chief upholders of the old regime and that it maintained this superstitious medieval hold on the peasantry, for example, that needed to be broken. And so there was a significant anti-de-Christianization campaign in France. Uh, I mean, not just things like the Vendée, uh, where honestly, yeah, the infernal columns did a lot of bloody work there and killed people and you know, drowned nuns and, and priests. Uh, it gave them Republican baptisms by drowning them in, in the Loire River and massacring civilians. But it was also a brutal war on the part of you know, the, the, the royal and Catholic army. I mean, they were hacking people to pieces all the time, too. Uh, but even beyond that, there was a concerted effort in certain departments by certain zealous uh, Jacobins to persecute priests, uh, to, you know, commit iconoclasm and to try to uh, break the spell that the Catholic Church had over the French people to the extent that it still existed. And the thing is, though, that Robespierre, the, 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 the guy in charge, the chief Jacobin, uh, was, well, of course, he was not a Catholic. Uh, he was abhorrent of the de-Christianization campaign because he recognized that virtue does not come from logic alone. Virtue has to come from a uh, some sense, some ritualized, sacri sacralized relationship between citizens and the state, the way that the feudal order had between the, king, the god and, 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 and his subjects. Because that's where, that's where real consent comes from. Consent can't really just be generated from authoritarianism, certainly not at that point, given the level of technology. Uh, it had to be like socially uh, generated. And the way to do that is to, is to have people have a sense of transcendent relationship to something beyond themselves that, that the government is a representative of, that isn't alien to them. And so what Robespierre's idea was, was to replace Catholicism with something he called the, uh, uh, the cult of the supreme being. Uh, and essentially tried to turn deism into a new Catholicism whereby the rituals of religion are paired with a rationalistic appreciation of God as an unmoved mover and nothing else, and human affairs as their own, and not governed by supernatural actions. It didn't really get off the ground. There was really only one festival of the Supreme Being, which Robespierre uh, presided over, a few months before Thermidor, uh, and his, and I think just before his his ultimate, the last nervous breakdown he had before Thermidor, he kept having nervous breakdowns and being gone for long periods, and he had one right before Thermidor, and it was during it that a lot of the the Thermidorian uh, coup plotters started making connections and being like, hey, when he comes back, we don't want to be on that next list of of traitors to the revolution, because the funny thing is, is that at that point he was going after. They, like the ideological foes had been had been slain, uh, the 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 real war left like was among 
among like keeping the permanent revolution going was against corruption. And the thing is, is that the, the revolutionary government was wildly corrupt. Uh, and a lot of the most corrupt ones who hadn't been killed yet thought they might be in the next round of uh, persecutions. But anyway, so just before that, the last, like, the, the, the high point of, the, of, his, of his reign, the high point of the Robespierrean reign of terror, uh, for him, I think, anyway, according to, to witnesses, he was beaming, uh, was the Festival of the Supreme Being. And it was a procession, and there was a big float, and it was like a goddess of reason, and he was just, he was chiving like crazy. But uh, it was also a, it ended up being one of the things that broke his hold over people because everyone else basically there in the crowd and among the dignitaries was kind of embarrassed uh, and it was essentially a cringe post. The Festival of the Supreme Being was a huge cringe post and the entire group of people was cringing. And even though this was still the terror and people's heads were getting cut off for the merest denunciation from a neighbor, people were heckling Robespierre. People were telling him to fuck off. That's how cringe-inducing it was. Uh, and that's because you can't do what he wanted to do. You can't just say, hey, you guys, you know your socially embedded religious traditions that, have, you know, that are deeper in your minds than, and then conscious thought almost because of how, how much your life has been shaped by them? Forget that. I got this other stuff. It'll do the same thing, though. It'll be fine. It's like Catholicism, Catholicism, Catholicism. We've got Catholicism at home. At home, some dorky-looking papier-mâché uh, lady in a toga. But I will say that I at least give Robespierre credit for recognizing that what the de-Christianizers wanted to do was a non-starter. At least at that level of coercive capacity of the state. It was a peasant country, and, and, and they didn't have the mechanized ability to suppress the peasantry the way that the Bolsheviks would. Uh, ooh, this is good. Was, was there was a period when people started to think the guillotine thing was cringe. That's true. Uh, there were a number of, ex of, 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 of notable executions at the latter half of the Reign of Terror that started to clearly turn people. One of them was Danton because Danton was one of the most popular figures of the revolution, incredibly charismatic, well-liked, uh, probably guilty of corruption, as he had been accused of, uh, but he's the guy that people like to point to as the what-if what if guy, because he seems like he had the capacity to rule of a guy like Robespierre, but without Robespierre's brittle and paranoid nature. Uh, but, oh well. He ended up on the wrong... And he left Paris at the wrong time, honestly. That didn't help. Um... But that's because, you know, he knew where his bread was buttered. But anyway, the execution of Danton was not popular. Uh, and of course, you've got the fact that uh, he was such a fucking baller on the tumbrel. His last words were to the, to the guy who picks the, head, the executioner, who then takes the head out of the basket and shows it to the crowd. He said, make sure the crowd sees it. It's worth a look. Because he had this incredibly huge head that was, uh, er people, people said it was like erotically ugly. He had, a, he had a big uh, scar on his chin from when he got gored by a bull as a child. And he had, like, pig nose, and he was broad, a lot of, uh, like, smallpox scars. And he was just still, like, 
sexually mesmerizing and incredibly, uh, uh, he was a Chad. He was an absolute Chad. Whereas Robespierre was also unattractive, if you've ever seen a buster picture, and also poxguard, but a little nauseous little dude. They called him the sea green incorruptible because he was always looked like he was going to puke. He was wildly unhealthy. And his voice was uh, high-pitched and, and tremulous. He was, it's kind of amazing that he got where he was. It was, it was because he was the, the one who, he was the most hysterical person during a period of mass hysteria, which I like to point out was the fault of the Girondins. It was the fault of the fucking Brousseauists. The guys who go down in liberal history as these innocent victims who wanted a real, real liberal revolution that would have given over uh, to the people, uh, you know, a, a new France with, with real liberty and real ability to rise and fall by merit instead of the crazy uh, uh, blood ritual that it turned into that necessitated then the Thermidorian reaction and then finally Napoleon. Uh, but one of the planks of the... Uh, because the thing... And, and, and there's a lot of reasons that's bullshit. One is there wasn't a lot of actual ideological difference between the Girondists and the Jacobins. They did not have a lot of policy differences. You could say things like executing the king, but there were plenty of Girondists who wanted to execute the king, and there were some Jacobins who didn't want to execute the uh, king. And a lot of them because they were against the death penalty on principle. Um, the big thing they were on, the difference was, is that the, the, the Girondins wanted to declare war on Austria. The Girondins wanted to export this liberal revolution across Europe and break the chains of feudalism wherever they found them. And it was Robespierre who said, don't do it. Robespierre, I said in, a, in a, I think last week, I said, he said, the only thing people hate more than a missionary is an armed missionary. And at that point, Brousseau and his boys were like, fuck that, we're going to do it. And then it starts going poorly, as you could have imagined. And that is when the tenor of the whole thing changed, because people started to freak out that the Austrians were going to show up and kill everybody. That's when you have the September massacres. And then that inevitably is going to lead to the people who, who seize that moment of fear most efficiently, most effectively, are the ones who are going to take power. And that was the, 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 the gang of hysterics. Jean Just and, uh, and, um, and Robespierre and the guy in the wheelchair. Uh, Somebody wanted a little background on what I was saying. Is that, I'm sorry, is that for a while before, because in the French Revolution, after the king was finally deposed, you had factions within the, 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 the National Assembly. And the, the ruling faction uh, that executed the king was... Uh, called the Girondists. They were all named after the places that they held meetings, and they were all, uh, they were usually named after one or another medieval order that owned the monastery they stayed in. And you had the Girondists and you had the Jacobins, also known as the Mountain, who were on the left wing of the chamber and stood up at the back. And 
And uh, eventually, after, after the ruling Girondins went to war with Austria and fucked it up, the Jacobins took power and started chopping everybody's heads off. But then the war started going well, the tide of hysteria went away, and what was left was people who saw a bunch of weirdos trying to build new religions in the middle of uh, uh, piles of cow manure on, uh, on the Place de Vendôme and said, let's get rid of these guys. Which then led to the, the directory, which is such an amazing government when you look at it. It was purely cynical. I mean, it was made up of the most cynical members of the revolutionary leadership, the ones who had survived until that point. The only way you'd survive until Thormidor is if you didn't have any principles. Because if you had any principles, you either got out of government or you got killed. And so they just spent five years going playing whack-a-mole with the left and the right while ruling from the center in a completely, from a hollow center, which is essentially where we are now. The difference is, is that we don't yet have a situation of like uh, crisis and uh, failure of state capacity, whereby like the masses are a genuine threat because the, 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 whoever was ruling in Paris on a day-to-day -day basis depended essentially on who could get as many people who can get as most people in a place at one time? Who can bring as many people to the front of a palace at, this, at the same time? They generally had the run of the city. Which is not the case anymore. And that's what necessitated Napoleon. But the thing is, is that Napoleon was was the process, was the product of the revolution, right? He was, he was a minor noble, but, but so minor that he never would have been in a position of power within the military. He wouldn't have been a general uh, in, the, in the Yashant regime. Like the revolution gave him both the, uh, the social freedom to move at his own uh, talents, but also the, the, the field where he could express those talents. A constant war with the rest of Europe. What do we got now? Uh, meritocracy has been replaced by this, because uh, of course, and this is inevitable, this is why meritocracy is a lie, because even if you start off from a meritocratic position of pure equality and let everybody go, as soon as those distributions of resources are fixed and they're not replaced, as long as you're not doing like a Bakunin 100% estate tax, nobody gets to send any money to their kids at all. And honestly, even if you did that, because there's still social position and, in, and like just uh, early childhood development and access to mores, values, social connections beyond money that would render even clawing back from meritocracy at the, at, over time render it less. But now in our country, it's going to, the time's going to be much shorter because there's barely any clawback. Uh, it's almost impossible to lose a fortune in this country because it, almost all is kept intact because that's how our system is designed to work. And so it's, it's now, even that early meritocracy is burned out completely and it's just reproducing uh, an elite, copies on copies on copies, like, uh, like in multiplicity. And we are at like the 15th Michael Keaton at this point, copied off of the 14th Michael Keaton who was copied off the 13th Michael Keaton. And then what is their experience? Get, uh, sh uh, sh shuffling papers around in a series of absolutely unwinnable 
wars that aren't even designed to be won. They're designed to be had, just like our arguments on the fucking internet. Our arguments on the internet are just like our fucking colonial wars. They are there to be had. They're there to chew up time and resources. They're not there to achieve objectives. So, I mean, Napoleon was fighting for an army that was fighting for its life. His first uh, big success was fighting against an internal insurgency. The city of Toulon, which had separated after the, the seizure of power of the Jacobins, had seceded from France and taken English help and was being besieged for months by the French army and had to be, had to, and, and had to be uh, seat taken by thanks almost single-handedly to Napoleon's wiles. If there's, a, if there's a Tulum now, if there's a Tulum now, you're not supposed to take it. You're just supposed to stay in the lines. You're, you're supposed to be there. You're supposed to chew up time and resources. You're supposed to uh, be a place on a budget line for more fucking uh, armored personnel carriers and, and, and small arms and, and missiles and drones to go. You're not supposed to do anything. And then after that, Napoleon, he marches and, and, and goes into Italy and just single-handedly wipes out the fucking Austrian forces there. You're not supposed to do that. You couldn't do it if you wanted to, for one thing, because there isn't any army that we can fight that way. And even though, the, and that's how we're, what we're designed to do, but the enemies we do fight, we're not supposed to beat. There's no Napoleon. No, the, all the system, the, 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 the explosion of... Uh, of possibility, the society in ferment, turmoil, and and from that growth, that revolutionary France was. We're 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 absolutely in the opposite situation, where all of our social conditions are only driving us closer and closer to uh, to this apocalyptic stasis, because there's no one with the will or ability to push against the algorithm. They're just going to let it. Reduce everything down to its component profit until there's just a little pile of fucking gold bars and a pile of fucking bones, and that's it. And of course, you know, if everything does collapse, and then I don't think that's going to happen. I, that would not be an environment that's going to create dynamic. It's not going to select for talent, I'll just say that. Apparently it's clear on the west coast now, which is nice. The fires are kind of down. Are the fires not on at all? How, how, what are, how, how more fire on fire, how much more on fire is California than it was a week ago? 50% more? Or 50% as 50 is on fire? 30% is on fire? 100% as on fire? 120% is on fire? I have no idea. Because you only hear the story at first, and then at some point you just sort of assume, well, it took, itself, it took care of itself. So now other people are telling me it's not clear at all. All right, well, never mind. Fuck me for asking. 420, baby. 420. It's 420 degrees clear. People say that, like, in Jersey and shit, it was all orange. I guess it was a little orange the other night, but it, I, don't, I don't really... I don't think that I observed much in the way of West Coast smoke and haze.
the Yosemite mega eruption of a volcano in 2020. We should be so lucky. Wouldn't that kind of solve global, wouldn't that solve climate change? Right? Because it would call like, a, it would cause a catastrophic cooling, right? And it would also probably reduce CO2 emissions really drastically, very quickly. That wouldn't kill everybody. Wouldn't even, it wouldn't even, I don't even think it would kill everybody in North America, right? Depending on how big the explosion was, of course. I haven't seen all of Bong Joon-ho's movies. I really liked Snowpiercer because it was very hard on its sleeve allegory, which I really like. I told you guys how much I love Mother. I feel like if you, if you, I, I feel like there's this idea that if the metaphor in your movie isn't subtle, it's not good. And I just don't think that's true. It's all about what you're doing with it, what you're trying to express with it. And there are plenty of ways that a very heavy-handed metaphor can work with other elements of the story you're trying to tell to make a good movie. Subtlety on itself, just because what that is, is that essentially says a good movie, an artistic movie is one that, uh, one that certain people are able to discern, right? Not everybody, not for everybody, because most people are dumb. It takes a certain type of IQ, a smartness, if you will, to be able to discern what's being said, and that that makes a good movie. And I don't think that that's what art is anyway. I mean, that's a way to critically anal analyze movies, I think, and it's a useful way because there are ways that subtlety of metaphor can, in certain situations, be an expression of a greater, uh, like, narrative, in uh, 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 narrative ingenuity or, like, a formal statement. But I think that what it really is, it's about, it's about feeling something that you can't explain. You should be able to explain it to some degree to other people, but there should be a, a really great art. There's a certain part of its appeal that will always be outside of your ability to express. You can feel it, and maybe you can kind of get it, but you can't really translate it to other people. It's, it's ineffable. If you can pin down the value like, oh, here's the metaphor, and here's what it means, and here's what it says about Trump, or whatever the fuck. I think, well, all right, that's a schematic for this piece of art, but, like, the soul is somewhere else. And I think that's one of the really negative impacts of uh, the recap culture that helped create the prestige TV moment that, like, reinforced the tropes and basically and told creators what they wanted to see and what they were to respond to, is that a lot of these shows, even the good ones, they feel like they... A lot of the elements in them exist explicitly. You can kind of see the seams. You can see where, oh, this is for the critics to point out. This is for someone to recap. This, and then they can create a pat explanation for what this episode means that's going to be deeper than the message of an episode of CSI Miami, right? It's going to say more about the human condition, but it's still mechanistic. It's, it's, still, it's still craft. It's not art. And I think the show, the show that always gets me with that the most is Fargo, which I think is very good, but I think the parts of it that aren't good are the parts where I can see, oh, this is for the critics.
I think I'm, I, I wasn't going to watch Devil all the time because it's two hours and it's a bunch of like British pu public school boys in short pants pretending to be hillbillies, which is very tiresome to me. But our Pats is going ham again. Might have to watch it. Although I really do not like his performance in The Rover that a lot of people like. And that seems like kind of a, that seems like a defining wacky rock patents or like committed patents and performance. And if you don't like that, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I won't like him in that either. Oh, and uh, that reminds me. So, this is one thing I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and I'll end with this. In the, in the context of talking about, like, the new critical understanding of television specifically. And not, no, no, not just television. All art, but specifically the narrative art forms. Television and movies. The stuff that we've convinced ourselves is where uh, all the horrors of this country originate. Not a reflection of them, but that, that's what we get. We are all... We're all Tipper Gore now. We're all PMRC people. We all believe that what we get out of culture is what we then do. We believe that. I think there's no other, under, there's no other way to understand the way people talk about art now in exclusively political terms. Why would that be the only thing you cared about unless it had some sort of significant impact on your life? It's like really, really getting into the score and only talking about score. If that was the only thing anybody talked about in movies, people would be like, what's going on? Why, what's with the score thing? And like, maybe that would be a weird, like, uh, that would probably have some sort of material explanation too, but it would be a different one. I think the, the answer for why we do it now is because we desperately want to think that this thing that is all we absorb all day, spectacle, has to be the seat of meaning and the seat of change because we can't imagine anything else. We can't imagine the real world anymore being a place where we do anything else but and reenact the shit we saw on the internet, which is where we really live, and the stuff we see in media. And that has created a, uh, a new sort of critical artistic tailorism where, or, or positivism? I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure which word specifically to use. Essentially what I'm saying is that we have replaced evaluating art, narrative art, we have replaced evaluating narrative art as a complex artistic ent enterprise with varying elements within it that we are going to evaluate for them and then see how they operate together to make a greater, a greater thing, a thing greater than some of its parts. That's what art is. You've got these parts. If it's good art, there's something that comes out above them, them something that comes and emanates from them. If it's shitty art, it's just the things. Now, art is a purely commercial, or it's a purely propagandistic product, and the only metric is good content, bad content, as in stuff that will make people act good versus stuff that will make people act bad. Good ideas, bad ideas. And then watching something is just clicking, like an umpire, or one of those, or you just wait and see. Okay, how many we got now? All right, we got 15 good things and 13 bad things. This is a good movie. We got 17 good things and 12 bad things. That's a good movie. We got four good things and nine, 90 bad things. This is a movie we have to drag. And actually, you know what? People shouldn't see it. And if they do, they're bad people.
And I think the reason for that is not, it's not malevolent. People aren't doing it because they're becoming like hysterical uh, uh, Philistines because of SJWism. It's because there's no, there's nothing else in movies. The art part is being drained out of them because capital is totally overwhelming them. The artistic, uh, the artistic impulse that has to be part and parcel to any artistic endeavor is in these commercialized art forms almost gone. It's been diluted to parts per million. And now that doesn't mean there still isn't great art, but it's just harder to find and it's more concentrated. And the average piece of art has less of it than it used to. Think of blockbusters that nobody would say are great art or shouldn't say are great art from the 80s versus blockbusters of today. And then remember the fact that that is even more hegemonic. Like blockbusters are a larger percentage of our, of our, of our movie diet. And, and uh, TV is a larger percentage, which is a more adulterated life, art form than film. Everything is just being drained of art. So what is left? What can we talk about? Well, you can talk about like uh, individual elements. Like, but that's essentially arguing about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. It's boring. Uh, it's brittle. Talking about the political element, that invests it with emotion. The emotion that we couldn't feel for it anymore because it's bad art. The emotion that we feel for art that comes from a, a, a connection to it has been replaced with a connection, an emotional connection related to our political beliefs. Because we can find it there. It's the only thing left in it that we can resonate with uh, art, uh, emotionally. Anything else that we would resonate with is gone. So we have to recreate what art is and turn it into this propaganda uh, exercise where the good and bad are pure just objective tallies within the movie, which means we don't have to think about it. We don't have to express our discontent about it. We can, we can, it's essentially a way to cope with our closing historical, uh, our, our, our closing artistic horizons is because as the, like the, the, uh, the edges come in, you know, and as it, as, as, as there's less good stuff, more bad stuff, bad stuff is worse, good stuff isn't as good, and there, isn't those, there aren't those high points, and there isn't even that basic level of engagement and satisfaction. That creates discontent. Like, this shit, this is shit, it sucks. But it's also one of our chief forms of soothing. Art is how we get through this shit. It is our opium, not in the bad sense, but in the 19th century sense, as a medicine, as palliative care for like getting a bullet pulled out of your fucking arm at Chancellorsville. It is necessary balm for the soul to continue living under this exploitative system. So you, but the system's not going anywhere. We're fucked. We're in it. Capital realism, baby. So we have to accept the shitty stuff as our only sucker and therefore decide that the artistic value is the political value because nothing else is worth looking for or could be found. And, that, and part of that process is that as we put more and more of our politics into our cultural diet, our politics become more uh, of an of a, uh, entertainment too. Like as entertainment gets more political, politics get more entertaining. And now, because we care about things we watch as a level of politics, like we watch our art to get a jolt of either righteous rage or, uh, or vindication. We, we get it from our art and we also get it from watching the news or scrolling our Twitter feed or going to Facebook to post a meme. 
It's all the same. It's been flattened. Because in the same way that art has been drained out of our uh, art, politics has been drained out of our politics. And politics is similarly denatured of any, any in this case, the art, the, the place of art would be uh, accountability to actual citizens of this fucking country. It's being adulterated out and denatured and replaced with spectacle and our emotional investment in the spectacle of it. The good guys are, are winning. Yay! The bad guys are winning. Boo! And that is why people are arguing about what the, whether it's moral to vote for Biden. It's like, my God, you are just... You're, you are gnawing your own flesh. How do you not see that this is a completely sterile argument that is just like if Batman could beat the Terminator and serves the same purpose? To waste time. To just go around in circles. To give you a jolt every day up until the big jolt, the big game, the election day. And then there's a come down. And then you're like, okay, that was intense. And then you get a refractory period. But then, as things keep getting worse, and we need more and more of that opium, we need more of that balm and Gilead to get through the day, what's this? Oh, shit, we're invested again. And we get to go back up on the fucking, we get to go back to the top of the goddamn drop at the cyclone. Ah, oh, until the next election. That's the exact same. It's all part of one continuous process of self-amusement in the face of Armageddon and personal alienation to the point of, of, uh, of misery. Of, of mass death. I mean, huge, huge, huge rates of, of suicides, uh, uh, drug overdoses. Uh, people are just checking the fuck out. Depression. They're checking out. Because none of this is enough anymore. But the people who are still able to function are putting more and more into this because it's the only button they have. It's the only button they can press. It's the morphine drip in the hospital. Fucking, it's the hospice morphine drip. Hitting it over and over again. Every time we're arguing about Biden, every time you're going to watch and see if Tenet is, uh, you know, is more dude bro uh, than Interstellar. Uh, they're talking, you talk about whether uh, uh, like there's sufficient intersectionality uh, in the Green New Deal or in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You're hitting the goddamn fucking morphine. The non-engaged are people who are get their uh, get their opium elsewhere. A lot of them get it in the form of actual opium, or at this point, fentanyl, which is the uh, which is the like TikTok of uh, of morphine or whatever. If you want to talk about like the accelerated endpoint of this thing, like Trump is the fentanyl of polit- politics is theater, uh, like Black Panther is the pinnacle of like politics as culture. Uh, and fentanyl is the fentanyl of just trying not to feel the pain of living. And other ones, uh, personal drama, uh, or they're just trying to survive. And, and, and their, their, their uh, opium comes in the form of the relief that they're still able to keep their head above water for another day. And they're not even thinking about any of this shit. But Mas- Maslow's hierarchy of needs shit. 
one of, and like all of these are the worst, most deadly, most refined, artificial, capital processed versions of this generalized cultural need to soothe the pains of exploitation through, through some sort of uh, ritualized consensus. And I would say, don't do that. Don't do, don't do that one either. My God. All these need to be uh, eschewed. Uh, we have to confront the pain of our, our alienation. And instead of seeing how hard it will be to change and say, oh well, better flee towards uh, pleasure recognize that that pleasure will never be enough. That pleasure will always be just beyond one's grasp and it will always leave you maddened with thirst. And that the only way forward for yourself is to confront the pain and uh, try to transform it. Try to change your relationship to the pain. And that's the beginning of spirituality, I think. Because, you don't, because spirituality is what, let you, is what allows you to live in the absence of this. And allows you to live in the absence of hope that you can get things better in your life in a, in, a, in, a, in a material way, because that's not going to happen. Someone just said, I love to coom. Man, that's gross. I'd say it gets worse, but it gets better. How about that? And that the fate of any human and the fate of the species is how many people and when break, or what time you break, one way or the other. Should I try and leave the states or stay at fight? You can't, man. We're, we're in here for good. They won't let us out. Can you believe it? The only way out is through. The best way I can kind of condense everything into. Because a lot of what I talk about on here is about how, how captured we feel. How trapped we feel. How out of options. How, how, how Hobson's choiced we are. And it's true, but the implication of that should not be some sort of pathetic nihilism that just ends up being more self-absorption, more uh, consumption, more hollow vapidness. It's just uh, from a, like one more remove of irony, uh, or try to conquer them. And that's by not finding the false wall that seems that of the of the walls that are enclosing, one of them is false. And you have to find the one that's false. As in, what are you worrying about? What is causing you pain? What is making your life miserable that doesn't have to? Like that you are essentially, in some way or another, choosing to make work, choosing to project there because the, the, the wanting you have is so powerful. The want you feel is so intense that it projects this wall. And that if you would confront that want and 
find that maybe you don't need that thing, then that wall disappears and you can move. But I don't know what it is. It's, it's for everyone else, every individual. And that's what's so maddening and terrifying about this moment is it's going to come down a lot of it to how many people are able to just sit. To sit with themselves long enough to f and knock and feel and find the false wall. All right, maybe I'll answer one question and I'll peace out. The funniest, I'll, I'll leave on this, the funniest president other than Trump. All right, you got to go with when they are president. So they're funny presidents. Mm, man, they really aren't very funny as a group. Nixon's pretty funny, obviously, just because of the face and the noise and the voice and, and all that. I guess Taft, because he was fat, got stuck in a bathtub. That's classic hijinks. And when you consider how much comedy back then revolved around like a fat guy getting into hijinks, it was essentially like uh, Hardy from Laurel and Hardy was president. I have to say, though, people make fun of Taft for getting stuck in the bathtub. I'm pretty sure that if I tried to go in the bathtub that he got stuck in, I'd get stuck in it. Because he looks like a big fat guy in the pictures, and he's remembered as the fattest president. But he was like 300 pounds, which in modern context in America is not that big. And he was tall. So uh, those bathtubs were made for people who were much smaller. So if I got in that exact bathtub, I'd probably get my ass stuck in it. All right, guys. See you. Bye-bye.